to close out the conference, we have Arietta, uh, who will be talking to us about turning design research deliverables into living documents. Um, we are close. Here's Arietta. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Very well. Thank you. Thank you for coming in at the end to bring it home and close it for us. I hope I can. Um, sure you will. I can, <laughs> I can see that. I'm, I'm going to step out of the way and, and leave you to it. Thank you. No worries. Thanks, Steve. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, thanks for joining me um, and, and sticking it out for the last, uh, last session of day two of the conference. Um, I'm here to talk about uh, how to make our wonderful um, artefacts and insights um, into living documents and um, lasting, lasting tools. Uh, my name is Arietta. I'd like to start by acknowledging the country that I live and work on, the Gadigal country of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, I wish I could see you, so thank you, as I said, for sticking it out. Um, this conference has been amazing. Uh, I think I'm a bit giggly now because my head is uh, giddy with the with the learning. I mean that really sincerely. And there's a few things I've heard, you know, throughout the the two days that that I touch on. Um, so I think some of the other speakers may have touched on these points with a lot more depth. But hopefully, you get something from hearing this all together in an end-to-end -end design process. Um, so why do I care about, um, I guess, the shelf life of, of what, we, what we do? Um, it's a topic I care about for several reasons. So I'm in design leadership now. I've worked in digital service design and product innovation, but I started in implementation and that was the designing, you know, large-scale content management systems. So I've always been a bit preoccupied with knowledge management. And I'm also really passionate about what we do because, um, you know, we're in a working context um, now where research and, and some UX processes feel to some stakeholders like they're a delay. But that is my exact opposite experience when people take that leap um, of faith. Um, that I actually think it increases uh, velocity, it fuels collaboration and, and alignment. So how can we do what we do better? How can we do it more consistently? And how can we do it in a way that helps us and others thrive, you know, particularly in agile contexts? So today I'm going to um, share two parables from past projects. I'm going to reflect on the ways that we get in our own way about what you can do where you have nowhere to go or room to move uh, to undertake your research and how you can turn your research into a living resource. The first parable was, um, it was a few years ago. It was a large financial institution that tasked their agency to redesign their public website as a mobile-first experience. More than a year had passed. It was 10 months um, to the deadline. So, you know, quite generous timeframes um, by, well, by the standards I'm used to these days. Um, but in this time, over a year, there were no designs yet, there was no content, and nothing had been built yet. 
There were a lot of other things, though. There were research reports, there were presentations, there were scenarios, there were journey maps, and there were many, many, many personas. I was a consultant at the time, and I was brought in to assess, um, you know, with um, with someone else, um, effectively to audit the work, um, to help the client understand if the project was at risk or not. And I can tell you, it was at risk. Um, the story, this story could be about a few things. It could be about missing design leadership, missing project management, could be about so many other things, but uh, misdirected design research did play its part as well. To recover the project, we went through an audit process. Um, so uh, I love reading, which is uh, great because I had to read through all of these official artefacts. Um, and then I dug up all of the unofficial ones, especially the raw research transcripts. Uh, the artefacts themselves read as a story of change changes more than they read as a story of the customer experience. When new people joined, they embarked on similar activities, starting at the beginning and re-summarising already summarised reports. So somehow, they, these artefacts weren't effective or believable to new people on the project. And the project was caught in this kind of loop, this unvirtuous um, cycle as a result. Uh, so 49 documents were synthesised into one model of the experience. Um, so this is an example model, not the model, um, of a mental model diagram or, or task model. And um, Robin, Robin mentioned um, this in her keynote. One persona set was made from 17 documents that kind of touched on personas in, in different ways, and some of them were personas. Um, actually, I'll tell you how many were. there were personas. There were 27 personas, um, which were reduced to a workable set of seven, and five uh, requirements documents became uh, one, which was through an exercise of both synthesis and workshops with, um, with our stakeholders. So the mental model diagram became the vehicle for the audit. Um, and to give you a sense of uh, what this looked like, we're in this uh, project room, uh, and it's the, the diagrams printed out pre-COVID, obviously, and it encompassed all all four uh, walls. Um, there were two segments, um, so one of the other segments, that mental model diagram, ran right down the hall. And what was important about that is it created this impression in in the office. We were just beavering away, doing our thing, um, but people just started gravitating uh, to it, uh, which was something that we didn't expect, but we rolled with it. Um, so software architects um, were the first to come in and look at this model. They asked us a few questions about it, what it was, um, and they kind of intuitively uh, knew it, uh, sorry, understood it, and, um, and then they began discussing their work in relation to the model. So we were able to add those cues for them as well. Um, then the content lead asked how the model was generated, uh, which was in Excel, which he was incredibly delighted by. I think Excel is an underrated design tool sometimes. Um, and he asked if he could use it as a basis for the content audit and content strategy. So this was a huge um, head start for him and his team. Now, uh, the good news was the project did get back on track. And despite the shaky start of design research, 
Um, the research that was conducted, you know, was was kind of resuscitated in in such a way that it was able to remain a thread through the rest uh, of the project through to the the design and build and launch. So, what are some of the cautionary takeaways um, from from this story? The link between research and design can feel really flimsy when there is no focus. So in this case, there was no focus on it being a mobile first experience. There was no focus on usability. There was no focus on it being an omni-channel service design experience. There was no focus on products. It could have been a degree of all of those things. Uh, but the research was so focused on the customers, they forgot what they were making it for. So design research artefacts uh, in the discovery phase cannot become an end in and of themselves. They need to point to something. They need to inform something. They need to inform outcomes. So how did that team get in their own way? How might we sometimes get in our own way? Um, now, I'm going to go through this uh, next few slides fairly quickly because I, I do think Katie um, uh, earlier today really nailed this in a lot more depth. But, you know, we talk process over outcomes, and I recognise the irony of this because this talk is all about process. But this is a red flag for those unsympathetic with customer-led approaches, including developers and product people with you know, lean startup as, as their mantra. So consider holding back on the details of the effort. You know, choose your audience for this and instead lead with succinct summaries on key problems. Detail the approach, you know, where appropriate as, as an appendix. Are your insights obvious? And again, Katie really, um, you know, delved into this, um, you know, really well talking about things that are, you know, meaningful and relevant and, and new. Um, think about the so what um, of what you're playing back. So what from the design implication point of view and don't overplay findings as insight. And it's okay if they're just findings because they still can have design implications for what you're designing, how you're building, how people are using something. Um, one thing that occurs to me when uh, designers and design researchers are working on, on projects is um, when it comes to findings and insights is something could just be new to them, but it's not necessarily new to their stakeholders. So just be mindful to not conflate your ramp up on the project in the, the subject matter area with the insight that you're presenting. And definitely workshopping implications um, and collaborating with team members really helps in finding that balance. Okay, the biggest, the biggest problem um, that occurred in that project, but I do see play out in, um, in little and big ways um, quite often is people getting caught in discovery loops. Um, so our stakeholders, uh, when they see this, you know, they might think, when, when does design happen? Is this design, particularly those who are unfamiliar with UX processes? So what should we do here? We need to deconstruct the brief. So think about what needs changing. 
Why does it need changing? And define each of those objectives. Frame your research questions for each of those objectives and think about, you know, when you need to go wide and when you need to hone in. There is a place um, for Lean UX approaches and, you know, sometimes you have enough of an evidence base that you can make good guesses with confidence. So do follow those approaches and embrace them for more straightforward and less complex briefs. Also consider the integrity of each artefact. So does the artefact itself work as a tool? Do the artefacts repeat themselves in ways that aren't helpful? Um, and uh, I think Adrian, you know, yesterday said, if the artefacts aren't being used, change them, um, which we did by changing all of those reports into that mental model diagram in that previous example and in the other examples I'll show you today. So what, um, what we did to help pivot that, that project was use the central model. Um, and I've found in my, in my design practice that modelling the whole experience helps to avoid um, repeating research while showing the knowledge gap. So when you've got a knowledge gap, it's really easy to demonstrate where you should go deep and where you can just um, riff off what you've got. Okay, so introducing the model. Um, uh, on the, uh, on, in the keynote, you would have heard Robin refer to this as a task model diagram, which uh, I, I often do myself. Um, Indy Young, who gave last year's uh, keynote, refers to these as mental model diagrams, and she indeed wrote the book on the subject. I highly recommend you go and listen to her keynote um, from, from last year. Um, but... The reason why I love this tool, and in a way this talk is a love letter to, to this tool, um, is it bridges research to design, to action, in a really tangible way. So it consists of two halves. It's a model of the whole experience, um, and it shows the experience that people are having with your service or product and also outside of it. It provides context as to why people make certain choices, um, and there's something important important here about this model that I, I think for me particularly when I saw how software architects were gravitating to it um, and when I've compared that to other, um, other artefacts I've used is really interesting. It's just boxes. It looks really simple. It's kind of agnostic. It's not this beautiful graphic artefact. Um, it's It's pretty vanilla in a way. And for me, that's always presented um, this kind of neutral territory. People can take from it what they will, but it's not loaded with um, some of the associations that people might have with design, pardon me, with design artefacts. Um, so the top half is a visual depiction um, of, of what customers are doing. It describes people's goals their purpose and what they're doing to achieve them. And the bottom half of the model um, is how the organisation supports the experience by way of content or features or capability, and it shows the gaps. Now, those gaps could be explicit or purposeful. The organisation doesn't want to play a role in supporting that aspect of the customer experience, or it could show where the opportunity is. 
it's really important, and I'll I'll take you through some examples here of, of what's covered. And I know, you know, we've this is a conference full of practitioners, um, so you know this. There's there's explicit um, uh, data, what people are doing, the steps they take. You know, what's really um, obvious uh, to people. Um, then there's implicit um, findings, implicit behaviour, motivations, um, thoughts feelings, uh, where people are confident, uh, where people might be anxious. And that's also really important to capture in the model equally. So here's an example from uh, Age Care. Um, so I, I developed this. It's, it's a much longer uh, model. I developed this when I was uh, working for a uh, community services uh, provider. Um, so this is the, um, I guess, the taxonomy of the model. It starts off with the purpose or goal, in this case, care for an ageing parent. Uh, it has what people do. So Indy calls these towers, um, but it's almost like if you think about it as the high-level the high level task. And then those little boxes are how people do it, the steps they undertake, the explicit and implicit steps they undertake. So digging down into some of the content um, in, in that model, example tasks might include helping an older parent with an underlying, um, you know, concern about their health. Um, at the same time, you know, often people are managing two households. They're managing their own household and then they're managing their parents' household increasingly over time. Um, many people enter aged care after an emergency of some kind. Um, and then when they do that, they're wholly unprepared to negotiate the aged care system and the government bureaucracy when they do. They're already emotionally exhausted. Um, so to then have to call providers who assume, uh, sorry, then people call providers, um, and those providers assume that people are already hooked into the system. They've already had a, what's called an ACAT assessment um, and these are concepts and terms that people have just been introduced to. So understanding, you know, what people are doing, but also what else is going on in their lives helps show the mismatch between the provider, in this case, how they answer the phone, the urgency they have, um, the time they give to answer those questions, and then what, the, what what's going on for the person in their context. Um, I'll go into a second parable now. This is from telecommunications. Uh, this was a transformation program uh, which had a few red flags. Um, the brief was twofold. It was a digital transformation of the telco's infrastructure and service layer to enable a self-serve and seamless digital experience to migrate customers to the MBN and, um, and the economic imperative was to reduce the cost to serve. A few buzzwords in there. Now, Agile shouldn't be a red flag, um, but waterfall, time box, sprints, masquerading as Agile are definitely red flag, red flag, red flag. So a mental model diagram underpins um, the approach to the brief. This time I worked in-house, uh, which is important um, because I had some home ground advantage. I'd been working for the organisation for a few years. 
I knew what research was existing and relevant that we had at hand to pull into the model. But we did start modelling the experience as a first step. Um, And we did that um, to enable our designers who were in um, different, different squads, but also to show where the gaps were in our understanding. And it was an interesting project, very interesting dynamics. There were scores of people on it. It was the first phase of what ended up being a five-year transformation uh, program. Um, And then we're working with management consultants too. And those management consultants came in with a very particular methodology. Um, In their mind, it was customer-centred. And in some ways it was, but not in the same way that we approach user-centred or customer-centred designs. There's a little bit of a, a clash of cultures and the project team and the director had to give us a little bit of rope and and certainly extended us some faith when we said, you know, we've got these knowledge gaps and we've got to go fill them out before we can design for this experience. But we're able to show we're able to show that. Um, so we we conducted new primary research. That was a combination of um, focus groups with customers, so we could get a bit of an impression of the similar experience they had with our competitors, which was research we didn't have, um, as well as field research at um, uh, in call centres and with our field technicians, who were amazing and quite funny. I had to do asbestos training to get on the field. That felt exciting. Um, so here's some examples from the mental model diagram, the telco mental model diagram. Um, so the purpose or the goal for a customer migrating to the MBN, and everyone in the Australian audience would have done this by now, is to ensure they're always connected. We had a bit of a semantic um, uh, debate about this with the consultants who wanted a snappy get connected. And we're like, no, it's not get connected. No one ever wants to be disconnected. So the explicit task that, um, you know, people undertook was to compare with other providers for the best value, evaluate offers, ask questions for clarity, um, engage with the provider in store, um, phone, online, reconsider their usage needs and commit to buy from a service provider. It sounds very rational and logical. The implicit tasks were a lot more interesting, which was to understand what is the MBN and how does it affect me and do I need it? Can I avoid um, Can I avoid migrating at all? Do I have to do this? Um, they People were wondering if someone needed to be home for the technician. They were annoyed um, at the prospect that their plan, their bundle that they'd had um, for a while might need to change. Um, they wanted to understand how the install affected their premise, so where the connection point would be. A huge one was worried if new holes had to be drilled in their house. Um, And they also felt unrewarded for their loyalty. And it was really important to bring this insight to the design process because um, with our product managers, with the clients, there was so much um, default to showing a plan up front, to showing a package up front. But we're able to show them this insight and say, actually, your your audience here is your existing customers. You're actually antagonising them by pretending um, that you don't know them. Um, You're antagonising them by not addressing their needs up front. 
um, and you're antagonizing them by treating them like a new customer. If you're treating them like a new customer, they may as well go and compare um, and see and see how you stack up now against against the competition. So we're able to influence um, a more needs-based um, presentation of information first before we got to the plans. Um, this, this slide shows how um, the whole process, the whole design process roughly played out. And these are definitely the design artefacts. There are a whole bunch of other artefacts that were produced in the first stage of this um, uh, project, all of this economic modelling, um, technical architecture, process diagrams. Um, there, was, there was a lot, but here are the design ones. Um, so as I've mentioned before, there was a task model diagram. We ran um, workshops with our colleagues in product, uh, tech and operations to, to uh, really fill the story of what the bottom half of the model was and how we were supporting the experience. Um, then, uh, as I mentioned, we had uh, essentially one or two designers in each, in each squad. And squads were kind of split up according to, you know, roughly the customer journey. Um, and in their sprints, they were addressing a segment of the task model. So it could be that you had a sprint that was just looking at one particular tower, or it could be that your sprint was covering multiple towers. But they're able to see it. They're able to see it and they're able to see, okay, what are we doing um, organisationally to support this? They were also able to see in the mapping that we did up front, um, what existed and what needed to be created in terms of content assets. Oops, sorry. Okay. So user stories were able to be generated directly, directly from the model. Then um, people were able to generate, um, you know, scenarios and user flows, um, wireframes, of course, and, and prototypes, which were which were tested. Um, and there was a range of testing, um, usability testing, and service enactments because this was a, a more of a service design project than than a straight up digital project. Importantly, a key step and and a way that the model really helped us. Um, at, a, at a critical moment in the project because it was very fast-paced. If you remember, we had these like time box sprints um, and we didn't really have much elbow room to move outside of um, this, this program. Um, so we had a cross-stream reconciliation workshop so all the designers could come together um, and, uh, and align. So we were able to align our, our prototypes and design a cohesive experience, see where the gaps were, see where the inconsistencies uh, were, and just double check, have we addressed that need? Have we addressed that need? Is anything missing? And lastly, everything came together in a customer experience vision and a story, which was one of the more surprising um, outcomes of the project. The, Use cases here um, and, and the needs described here in that future tense um, directly correlated to what we had set out in, um, in the beginning of the task model. So the needs in the current state that were then transferred into this projection of what the future state would look like. And what is very interesting about this is 
um, that ended up being one of the more enduring artefacts. So the task model was definitely used by teams after our phase of the project or the program had concluded. Um, but this this uh, experience vision also stayed up on the wall for years while the program was being carried out and, and was particularly referenced by developer teams and product owners. Um, I was um, really struck by Innes' uh, comments um, yesterday. And um, thank you, Innes, for um, uh, I, I reached out to Innes and got her permission to put this in the presentation. And Innes asked, in the rush and pressure of delivering research results, go, 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 faster research cycles. Are we compromising on the real learning and dedicating enough space for reflection time as individuals and as a team? Uh, I would say no. Often that's not the case. Often we're stuck um, and caught between a rock in a hard place. And this experience of having no way to go, little room to move, it's pretty common these days because um, we can't fit discovery in here. We can't fit um, research uh, in a sprint. Um, we know we can only fit certain design and design research activities. Um, uh, and so instead we need a practice um, and tools that help us, you know, envelop uh, this process. Um, so we can distinguish research that's exploring strategic opportunities um, to research that's helping us prioritise uh, roadmaps um, and then making our research directly usable so people aren't making up user stories, so they've actually got a reference point to bring in that voice of human experience into what they're doing so we can actually be designing from a very authentic and useful space. So turning research into a living resource. Um, this is um, the uh, mental model diagram that um, I've begun building out for the Iconic. Um, uh, for those that don't know, the Iconic is an um, e-commerce uh, retailer. Uh, it is fast-paced. It's a scale-up. It's very creative, which uh, is why I joined. Um, it's fun. Um, creativity can be a double-edged sword. It means everyone has an idea and loves their ideas. Um, and it's, we, you know, we work in an agile environment too. And um, a lot of our projects have been, you know, like has, like has been spoken about um, in this conference, a lot of the research activities were more on that edge of, validating an idea, so someone coming up with a feature idea and just having some research activities potentially peppered in a sprint process to validate them, but not necessarily to generate them and not necessarily to inform what we do and what we don't do. And I'm not going to pretend e-commerce is the most complicated space. It's not, but the order in which we invest our resources is really important. So something that I talk about a lot at work is um, it, it's not really about whether ideas are good or bad, it's when we do them. That's what's really important and critical for our business. Um, the way this 
mental model diagram was uh, generated wasn't, um, let, let's call it, it was resourceful. It started very resourcefully. Um, so I had to start this from available data um, sources, uh, which were NPS verbatim and uh, user voice, which is a feedback um, platform. Um, it wasn't perfect, um, but it actually didn't have to be. We just, I just needed a lay of the land so I could understand in the absence of any deep ethnographic research, um, what the customer experience was. And even though we had monthly NPS reporting, um, the kind of statistical way that that report was, uh, was, was often told didn't really give me what I needed to know to understand uh, the experience. But deep diving in the, into the verbatim did. Um, and, and I know that, um, you know, our, our practice often has um, some problems with MPS. Um, it can be problematic. But luckily, um, iconic customers left very detailed verbatims and I've looked at verbatims before in other industries. So um, it was it was interesting to see and I, and I took that as a good sign of engagement, but a good sign of what we needed to do as well. Now, over time, what we've been doing is just injecting new sources of data into the task model diagram. So as we've been increasing our research practice and incorporating that in better ways into our agile process and our product development process, those insights which are or findings which are um, kind of evergreen have been in getting incorporated back into the model. And, okay, here's an example of how we're using it um, now. So it's, um, it's, it's now a springboard of, of ideas. There are three projects that are represented um, here. Um, and of course, Miro board is a prevalent design tool uh, in this uh, COVID world. Um, so we've got one project that is about the, uh, how we represent brands on our, on our site and what customers um, need, expect and, and want. Um, this other project is mapping out a checkout experience. Um, and the last, the last Miro board is looking at, um, it's, it's really a touch point map of, of how we're presenting and um, guiding customers through the experience of buying uh, at, from our sustainable range, which is a, a important kind of strategic pillar uh, of the iconic. And you can see there that you've got little segments of the model that people are able to deep dive into and just pick up. It's really useful for us to be able to do this, get this impression and make an assessment straight up of, okay, is this simple? Is this more complicated? Is this actually messy and, and complex? Do we have enough here to take a lean UX approach? Because we're confident we can, we can hedge some bets here. Um, or is this something that we want to go deeper into? So it informs the next stage and it informs, um, you know, mixed methods uh, approaches that we take. Um, I also made a uh, more consumable uh, presentation um, of, of this deck for a more general audience that I've been able to kind of showcase around various learning days um, at the Iconic so people can hear about the experience, which is really useful because otherwise they're projecting themselves as shoppers as the dominant experience with, with the Iconic. 
our next steps for um, embedding embedding the model. I'm glad um, that in the in the keynote, Robin, you know, she she touched on some of those uh, research uh, repositories, and I'm deliberately avoiding them at um, this stage. It could be that um, I feel like I have enough repositories um, in my life between Monday and Jira and Confluence, so it definitely could be that. Um, but the reason why I'm avoiding that is I want this to be about sense-making over retrieval. And it's important that it's about sense-making over retrieval because I want people to be able to see the whole and not cherry-pick the data that suits their idea or post-rationalises their idea. Um, the next step is to uh, immerse product owners and product managers in, in the data. I've got the... We've got the um, user experience team referencing this, uh, but um, we really need to socialise this outside of our, our team uh, so we can influence our roadmaps. Um, but we're going to take a very obvious next step and start redefining our experience, principles and guidelines for our design system uh, from, from the model. Uh, to recap, mental model diagrams bridge research to tangible actionable design. They facilitate lean and agile approaches. Uh, they avoid us researching the same ground and they help reuse of existing research um, as well as revealing knowledge gaps. One thing I wasn't able to show you here is you saw graphical representations of the model, but the, the Excel um, origins of the model have all of those references. So we can see, okay, it came from this study, it came from this participant. If something is anecdotal, but people believe it's um, really strongly, that's represented too, but it's, it's noted as anecdotal. Um, it allows people to zoom in to potential use cases, generate user stories, inspire and rationalize ideas, and it allows us to zoom out to the whole experience contextualise problems and develop strategy and roadmaps. Well, we hope so. Um, and, yeah, any any questions, uh, Steve, back to you. Hi. Thank you. That was awesome. I needed some water before I started, I think. All right. You have, you have, <laughs> you have some water and then I'll start firing. That's a great way to finish, Aria. Thank you. Um, Justin posed a question, um, which was looking at the mental model diagram, do you think there could be a role for visual imagery to help convey all of that complexity? Um, it's not complex once you start reading it, actually. Mm. Um, so in it's a look, it's a good, it's a good question. I've had good um, I think the way I'll answer that is. In that, in that first example with, um, with the finance organisation, there's we could have made journey maps as an artefact of, um, you know, that, that synthesis and that collation, which would have been a lot more visual. And I've created journey maps before, visual, engaging, um, you know, they can be as plain or as beautiful as, as you want. But they're then I think we would have just not solved the problem of the proliferation of artefacts. And so this is really 
I, I actually quite like that this is so vanilla uh, yeah. that you can then use it in any way. The model itself is just a little step. It's a little scaffold. Create all the visuals you want after it. I don't want people over-investing time in um, creating something beautiful from the model, but if you want to create a beautiful journey from the model, if you want to create... Um, you, you can you can generate scenarios directly from the model, user flows, designs, whatever. That's that's where we should put our visual energy. So it does take someone who's you know fairly literate with our process to look mm. at this and then go, oh okay, I know how to use it. But um, yeah, it's it for me, it's more about this is a source, this is a start. Um, mm. Once you have a look at the kind of taxonomy of it and start. Basically, that top-level goals and and tasks, or the, the those tower headings. Mm. If you just focus on those, it actually tells a very simple story. So mm. you can go as detailed as you want, or as macro as you want. Mm. So in, I haven't actually found um, visuals would add a lot of value, and I think it's over investing in the wrong stage of the project. Mm. Nice. Um, somebody asked for your telco client with all the collaboration and the different squads, do you think the same level of work would be possible with remote teams? Ooh, I think there's more work with remote um, teams. Um, so the telco client, I was, I was in-house at uh, Telstra. Mm. Um, it was an organisation that was actually used to hybrid working. They've had an all-girls yeah. flex policy for years mm. and years and years. So they were really well set up for COVID, actually. Mm. Um, I think remote is um, a lot harder, um, so you've got to be a lot more intentional about how you do it. Um, I think sometimes it's a little bit about the culture as well as you know, whether you're remote or not. Because the other thing about Telstra, at least my experience there, which was, I think, four and a half years, um, is all of my projects were cross-business unit and collaborative by the yeah. very nature of my work. Yeah. So yeah. everyone was used to working in a matrix organisation. So collaboration was normal and it mm. was really normal to basically, you know, your manager's off somewhere else, but your dotted line manager is, you know, whoever is the sponsor of the project. Yeah. Um, I think now working remotely, people often have these kind of um, blinkers um, on and they're, you know, they're working in a box. Um, you know, they could be being engaged on a project in yeah. all sorts of um, ways, but very sometimes very superficially. So I think yeah. the I, I think the collaboration needs to be very intentional. But, hey, you know, there's some advantages to it too. Um, so definitely tools like Miro and Mural make these things very, very easy. But I, I think that's all in workshop design actually and, and yeah. intentionally getting those activities in. Yeah. I mean, Telstra, I, my experience with Telstra is that because they have this national presence, um, and and a lot of that presence is actually duplicated functionality um, quite often. You'll have a team that's split. Um, I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that you'll have, you know, members of the CX team in Melbourne and other members in Brisbane and other members yeah. in Sydney quite naturally um, rather than, you know, 
Sydney is where the, the team is and the other team is in, you know, like they, they just tend to be more more diffuse anyway. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so they're ways of working in the absence, even in the absence of the, the technology piece, their ways of working tend to be more distributed anyway. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Nathan asked a question, where does the UX team fit into these processes and what role do they take on around what you've outlined? Um, okay. Uh, for, for, for me, the UX team is the custodian of um, or, or the representative. I, I, uh, I talk to the, you know, when we're talking as UX team, um, they need to be the customer advocate, um, particularly when people think they're the customer, which they are as well, right? But um, so where they sit in those those processes, you know, they need to be using these tools. They need to be championing these tools. They need to be referring to a range of um, insights and and bringing it in. So yeah, I think I think they're central. But um, it's also uh, it, it depends on how your product development process works. Really, I've yeah. worked in organisations where you've got designers leading product innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, in which case, you know, doesn't matter what your tool set is, they're leading it. They're consulting to, you know, product or or um, a service arm, um, mm-hmm. or it could be that you've got product managers in an organisation or product owners. And this is really typical in agile environments where actually they're leading. So yeah. my my goal is actually if everyone understands the customer experience, um, mm. then there's more of a kind of natural alignment of what we should be working on when because we're all familiar with the stories, we're all familiar with uh, the problems. So I don't know if the uh, UX team, of course, plays a part, but I, I also want everyone to play a part. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's very much going to vary based on the, um, the structure of the organisation and the particular thing that they're trying to get out into the world um, will also be quite different. I, I suspect that this approach in, say, Stav's um, team at Scania uh, might potentially have different roles um, to what it was like at Telstra or, or at that financial services um, company. Who shall remain nameless. Who shall remain nameless. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's wonderful. Look, uh, Arietta, thank you so much for closing out the conference um, for us. It's been a pleasure listening to you once more. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.